Psalm 77. We started uh, worshipful prayer, our prayerful worship. <laughs> Rather, it'd be good if I knew the titles of my own sermons. Uh, prayerful worship, the study of the Psalms of Asaph. We started in Psalm 73, worship and perspective. Psalm 74, worship and grief. Psalm 75, worship and vindication or God's righteous judgment. Psalm 76 um, was last week, and I'm trying to remember what that was. Um, worship and Ah, it starts with an R. Reassurance. Yeah, somebody took notes. Reassurance. And uh, tonight is worship and perseverance. Worship and perseverance. I read a book last year entitled Grit. G-R-I-T. I'd encourage you to write that down if you're a reader. I'd encourage you to write that down and read that book. That is a great book on perseverance. It's called Grit. The author... Um, said something like this. I might have missed a, a few words. But this is the essence of what she said. People don't quit because what they're doing is hard. Some people do, especially children. Um, I remember I quit piano because it was hard. Um, I'm trying to get my son not to quit when things get hard. He's struggling with that right now. But she said most of us adults don't quit just because what we're doing is hard. We quit because our hard work doesn't seem to be yielding any results. Right? So, so we, we've kind of got over the hump in our maturation in life of like, okay, like it's hard. I got to still do it. So we're kind of over that most of us. I hope you're over that. Um, but most of us quit because we are working hard, but it doesn't seem to be yielding positive results. Like this is the time every year where people stop their 2021 diet. We're about three weeks in, folks. I was talking to my Uncle Rick, and uh, he's on this, this messed up diet plan. All diet plans are messed up, but he's on a messed up one. And uh, I, I, I asked him, I said, dude, how do you do this? And, and he's like, well, he told me, he's like, straight up told me, I've lost 45 pounds. That's how I do it. Because it's yielding results. It's yielding results, and maybe he'll get to a point where he'll plateau, and that's what's going to, the grit's going to have to come in, Right? And we've all been there. Uh, so, some of us uh, give up on relationships because fostering that particular relationship isn't yielding positive results. Some just quit jobs because they're like, oh, I'm not doing any good here. I'll just go find something else. Some, some say, hey, I'm going to save money. And then they realize they start saving money and then more bills come in. It's like, this ain't doing no good. So that's where perseverance comes in. I'm talking about the, uh, the ability to stick with something even when it doesn't seem to be working. We all know how important perseverance is, but what does it have to do with worship? Well, worship isn't always easy. Prayer isn't always easy, especially when we don't see evidence of our worship yielding positive results. Like praying can get hard when your prayers aren't getting answered like you want them to. Singing praises to God can be hard when it doesn't seem like it affects the way you're feeling. Giving, that's worship, by the way. It can be hard when you don't seem to be seeing God's tangible blessings as a result. Serving can be hard when there seems to be little fruit that comes from your effort in the ministry. And that's why perseverance in worship is so important, whether it be praying, singing, giving, serving, or any other form of worship. We miss out, get this, we miss out on some of the deepest moments with God because we quit too soon. 
We give it our all until it doesn't seem to be working. And then we get discouraged and slowly begin to check out on that avenue of worship. That's where Asaph was in Psalm 77. He found himself in this very difficult spot in life. So here's what he did. He's done what he's always done. He started worshiping. It's what he's always done. It's his lifestyle. We, we saw that in the very first message on this. But unlike times in the past, in Psalm 77, he writes about a time where his worship didn't seem to work like it had before. And so what he's going to do is he, he writes this prayer song. And by the way, a lot of songwriters write songs from past experiences. And that's what Asaph did. He went through a very personal, troubling, tight spot in his life. And, and, and he worshipped, didn't seem to be working, and he was at a crossroads in his personal life. And he writes a song about this journey. And so we're going to go on this journey with him. And I, 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 I've, I've kind of separated the message into three headings to help us keep track of this journey. The, the first heading is this, distress. Okay, then we'll talk about doubt. Then we'll talk about determination. And this, these are just headings to keep us on track as we, we make our way through this psalm. But I want you to study with me. Look at verse number one. He said, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. Now, now get the severity of this word cry because you can look it up and study it in the original language and, and you, will, you will recognize quickly that it's, it's a violent term. It's not like we shed a few tears. This is an audible thing. It's why two times he said, I cried with my voice. It wasn't a silent suffering. He actually did the right thing. He let his voice be heard by God. That's a good idea, by the way. It's what you ought to do. Verse two, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. So these cries are arising from a trouble. We don't know what it was. Something personal. Now, he wrote in Psalm 74 about a national struggle. They were lamenting over their temple being desecrated. Psalm 77 isn't a national struggle. He's writing a song about a personal struggle. All we know is that it was troubling him. That word trouble, uh, it, it means being pressed in upon. It means you feel squeezed, constrained, a, a tight spot in life, a, a spot like you're in a corner and you can't find your way out. Asaph said this anguish came upon him in the night. And it wasn't a good night. He said the pain ceased not, like there was no pause button. So if you were to go into Asaph's room on this particular night, I don't know, around 3 o'clock a.m., you would find his eyes wide open, tears running down his cheeks, and audible cries coming out of his voice. It wasn't a good night for this guy. Verse 3. I remembered God. Now that's a good thing to do. But look at the next phrase. And was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. So in verse 1, he already tried to pray, cry out. It doesn't seem to have work. Now he remembers or thinks or meditates upon God. But those thoughts leave him troubled. Now we know that meditation is a form of worship. It really is. It's all over in the book of Psalms. Um, and we know how difficult in our society, at least for me, that meditation is. Being still, being silent, not saying anything. Uh, but, but, but rather just listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and, and chewing on some truths of the Word of God. And usually meditation makes us, well, especially when we're remembering God, we're meditating upon God, that doesn't make us feel troubled. But in his case, it did. 
So meditation is already difficult. It's even more difficult when what you're doing makes you feel trouble. And then these troubled thoughts led him to complain. That word complain has the idea of murmuring, growling, or roaring. So, 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 so I want you to get what he's going through emotionally. He's frustrated now. He was desperate, maybe sad, and crying out. Now he's to the point where like, dude, I've prayed, I've meditated, and now I'm complaining because nothing seems to be working. And the, the verse says that his spirit is overwhelmed. That means he's lost strength. Have you ever been there? It, it, it's the picture of almost like a swimmer that's out in the ocean and, and, and he has no help and he's got to get to the shore and he realizes that, that, that the amount of water to swim through to get to the shore is a lot more than the strength he has left. And if someone doesn't intervene, like he's going to run out. That's the picture here. Asaph has ran out. He, he, he's done in physical, emotional, maybe spiritual strength. Look at verse 4. Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Did you, did you see that? So, so he, can't, he can't even find relief in sleep. And he says it's as though the Lord is reaching his hands down from heaven and propping his eyelids open and almost withholding the peace that comes with at least checking out for the night. Dad, how many times have I called you? And I'm frustrated or I'm discouraged or I'm sad. And you always tell me this, go to bed, son. Well, you don't got any better advice than that? He's right. It's amazing what a good night's rest will do for you. It's amazing what will happen. You just pray, put your head on your pillow, close your eyes. And if you wake up, God's going to have new mercies for you that next day. And it's amazing when you wake up, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of a sinner now. I just, but Asaph couldn't do that. He couldn't sleep. And then he said, now he's silent. So because he couldn't sleep, no doubt he tried to pray again, but he can't. He can't even have the desire to pray again. It's almost like he's starting to believe that it doesn't work. So, so get this cycle he's gone. And he started in verse 1 with these desperate screams. And in verse 4, he's speechless. In four verses, he's went from loud outburst to complete silence. But he didn't give up yet because look at verse 5. I have considered the days of old, the, ancient, the years of ancient times. He said, hey, if nothing else works, I'm going to think about the way it used to be. I'm going to think about the good old days. Uh, uh, maybe he thought back to some of the things that his spiritual fathers and mentors would do when they were in times of distress. Maybe his mind went back to some of those Psalms of David that he led in the temple that talked about David's wilderness experiences. Maybe he was going to go sing through the, some of those songs. In fact, I believe he did sing through some of those songs according to verse 6. I'm trying to hurry. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. So, so he's like, okay, I've prayed, I've, I've meditated, I've been honest with God. I, I've, done, I, I've thought back on the good old days. Nothing seems to be working, so I'm going to pull out David's hymn book and I'm going to start singing it. But even that didn't work. Here's how I know it didn't work because he instantly went to soul searching. What's he searching about? He begins to search about the character of God. He, he, he begins to start doubting God's faithfulness and presence and promises and mercy and grace. If all of these things like crying and meditating and praying and singing would have worked up to this point, he still would, he wouldn't be searching. He wouldn't be frustrated. He wouldn't be sleepless. Something's not working. And because he's tried everything he's always done before, he begins to doubt. That's what it says in verse 7 and 9. 
Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fell forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? So he started this night for him, started with distress, and then it continued with doubt. He's wondering to himself, get this church, if prayer doesn't work anymore, if meditation doesn't work anymore, if sleep doesn't work anymore, if being honest with God doesn't work anymore, if singing praises doesn't work anymore, he said this, does God work anymore? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Has his promises failed me? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Here's what Asaph is asking. Does God's favor, mercy, grace, and promises even work anymore? See, at first we might look down upon such a man of God for voicing these kind of questions out loud. Or for even getting to this place of doubt in the first place. But can you hardly blame him? He's tried everything he's known to try in the past, but for some reason this distress is so deep that those things don't seem to be working. And the only thing that he has left, the only place I guess he could go in his hurting heart is that maybe God's done with them. Maybe God's checked out on them. He never doubted God's existence generally. He just began to question the existence of God in his life personally. I think we've all been there or we will be there in our worship. We'll be there in our prayer life. We'll be there uh, in our spiritual walk with God whenever our present circumstances and the way God seems to be reacting to them just don't go hand in hand. We do what the Bible says. We don't instantly leave church. We pray. We get honest with God. We cry out to him. We go to church. We sing. We do all the right things and we still can't shake free from this present circumstance and the feelings of distress that it's bringing. So here's what we conclude. Something must be wrong with God. I've done everything right. I've done everything that's worked for me in the past. I checked off all the boxes of the right response that the pastor tells me to do. So the problem's not with me. It must be with God. Something has changed about him. Because I've checked off the boxes, we begin to doubt. But I want you to get this and hear me. I think that this point of deep distress in our life that leads to doubt is actually sometimes necessary for us. I think it's sometimes good for us. Think about it. If God changed our situation right away every time, if God answered our prayer just how we wanted him to the first time, if God let us sing our blues away every time, if God let us have a perfectly good night's rest in the midst of our distress every time, we never build the muscle of faith that only comes through perseverance. We never learn how to press through the darkness of life if God gave us what we wanted right away every time. Even deeper, if we never search for the answers to our questions about God, we ne I, I mean, I, let me say it this way. We would never search for answers about our questions if we didn't, if, if we didn't have to get in a, in a place of doubt where we were questioning in the first place. So, so, so then there, there would be a level of personal intimacy with God that would never be attained because we never had to search for it. Parents know this about their own children. If we gave our children what they wanted, when they wanted it, and how they wanted it, and we did it every time, you know what we would develop? One selfish, shallow, irresponsible, entitled, and weak adult. And we are reaping a harvest of bad parenting in the United States of America. 
The good, the good parents have learned to say no. They've learned to make their kids get a job and not allow their kids to quit something every time they got tired of it. Because they understand the importance of their child learning how to persevere. I have an amazing resume of high school jobs. Paperboy, dishwasher, and cart pusher. Employed by Southwest Daily Times, employed by Golden Corral, and employed by Walmart. And there was a time in every one of those jobs where I told my parents, I'm quitting. This is stupid. And they never let me. What are you going to do? I don't know. I'm going to quit. What you, I, no, I don't know. I'm going to quit. Don't ask me for solutions. I'm just going to quit. And they didn't let me. When I got old enough to go work at Golden Corral, I, I thought it was just cool to have a real job. So I rode my moped to work every day. Went in the back door, thought I owned the dish pit. Well, the dish pit became not really that appealing when you're, you're washing people's buffet plates. I mean, people that eat at all-you-can-eat buffets aren't particularly neat anyway, but, but on, top of the, on top of that, they don't care about what they leave on the plate, right? I mean, you got truckers coming through, and, and there's chicken legs everywhere, half-eaten, and, and dentures and everything else that they leave on their plate. And, and, and you gotta, you got to wash that stuff off, and, and then it's all over you. You go home, you smell like nastiness. And, and you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, so um, I wanted to quit that and, and, and they never let me. And then I got old enough to actually go to Walmart and, and you know, I mean, you would, why are they going to make me a cart pusher? I, I, don't, I didn't get that. I didn't apply for that. Do I look like a cart pusher? Just say no. Say no, please. I mean, I, 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 I didn't, I just, I don't know. I, 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 I got to stop there. I got to stop there. But I, I hated it. It was before the days of the remote controls and all that stuff. And so you had to just grind it out. And, and I wanted to quit and they never let me quit. And I'm thankful they didn't because I was able to pay for my entire first year of Bible college all cash. Because they taught me perseverance. This isn't a parenting lesson, but we need more parents to teach kids how to finish what they start. Or not let them start it in the first place. Yeah, it's good. Well, God is the perfect parent, isn't he? And so even when we do everything right, we check off all the spiritual boxes during times of distress. God understands that sometimes he needs to delay an answer. Sometimes for our good, he needs to delay fixing our situation. He needs to delay making all our problems internal and external go away. Because he knows as our father that that he has to teach us how to persevere through distress and doubt. He, he wants us to learn how to process the questions that come up in our mind when we tried everything we could try and we've done everything right spiritually and yet God is still not reacting favorably to us. He knows we got to learn that. I'm trying to get across to you that that kind of response from God, even though you do all the right things in worship, is sometimes necessary and it's on purpose. But I also want you to know this, that when, you, when God does that, it's one of the most vulnerable times for a believer. It's necessary, 
but it's also very vulnerable because when a believer gets to the point where they actually start to doubt God's character and existence in their life personally, they're at a crossroads. Yeah, it can be dangerous. They'll either give up and walk away or they'll determine to press on and stick with it. And unfortunately, Brother Dave, I've seen good Christian people who've gotten to this point. They tried their best for a long time, but have little show for it. And so they begin to doubt and question God. And it seems to them that God has given up on them, so they might as well give up on God. God, I've cried to you. Instead of, in, instead of fighting myself and trying to sleep, I got out of bed and got on my knees and prayed. When I didn't want to listen to, to, to one Christian song, I, I listened to gospel music. I listened to Christian music. I sang songs. I, I went to church. I, I, I kept myself around the right people. But it doesn't seem like you're living up to your end of the deal. Pastor told me, check off this box, this box, this box, and this box, and I'll be okay. And I'm not okay. So you begin to doubt. And that's a vulnerable time. So here's what we're going to learn in the second half of the psalm very quickly. How do we survive that time? If you get to that point, and maybe some of you are there right now. Some of you will be there. You get to that point where doubt is very real to you. Because it seems like your relationship with the Lord is one-sided. Then what do you do? How do you survive that? Here's the next heading. You, you determine. Determination. Notice the very first phrase of verse 10. It's where perseverance comes in. And I said, this is my infirmity. Now I want you to park there for a second. Because Asaph did not go to some make-believe fairy tale type of place in his mind. Determination, perseverance in worship doesn't mean you deny reality. Okay, the power of positive thinking, you got to throw that out of the, out of the window. Because that doesn't change your circumstance sometimes. And Asaph says from the get-go, he acknowledges that nothing has changed about his circumstance. Nothing. Which, which, which flies in the face, by the way, of the preaching you hear in some pulpits and what you read in some books called Name It and Claim It. Meaning you name it and, and, and claim it and God's going to give it to you. Well, Asaph already named it in prayer. He cried out to God. He named it in praise. He named it in meditation. He named it in worship, but nothing has changed. His infirmity remains his infirmity. Here's what we're going to see, though. His circumstance didn't change, but his spirit did. And that's because of determined perseverance in prayer, in worship. Look at the I will statements of verses 10 through 12. And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of all thy doings. There's got to come a time. When we honestly say to God, all right, God, I tried everything I know to do. I've done what I've always done. It seems like nothing is working. My infirmity is still very much my infirmity. I feel like quitting because I, I feel like you quit on me a long time ago. But I will. I will set my eyes upon you. I will let your word dictate my response and not my situation, not my feelings, not my circumstance, not my brokenness. My reality will be determined by you, God. I will worship you. John Kitchen said it this way, a determination to worship God, regardless of circumstance or feeling, unleashes awesome power to change your perspective. The continental divide between pain and worship runs, runs along the ridgeline of I will. That's amazing. I will is a choice. I will signals a perseverance in worship when you don't feel like it. 
The phrase I will sounds like covenant language to me almost. Kind of like the day you got married if you're married in here. I know you said I do, but you meant I will. You were in this perfectly awesome romantic setting and emotions were all high and things were great. And, and you said for better, for worse, for richer or poor, I will. You made a covenant that day so that in future days, in other circumstances, with other kind of feelings, you will have already determined I will. It was settled long ago. Come what may, I will. And that's what a good marriage is made up of. Two people who keep saying I will. That is exactly what this is. Wedding ourselves to God as his worshipers. When we don't feel like it, we say, I will. When we don't see God in our circumstance, we say, I will. When we sing and it doesn't change our feelings, we say, I will. When we pray and don't get the answer we want, we say, I will. When we go to church and it doesn't seem to help us, we say, I will. I will pray. I will sing. I will remember. I will worship. Is anybody in here? And that's what Asaph did. And to close his psalm, he got so God-focused that the first half of the psalm, he only mentions God by title or pronoun 12 times, some, around that number. In the second half of the psalm, he mentions God by title or pronoun 24 times. So something changed in his intentionalities and determination. Something changed. He says, I I'm going to focus on God. And look at the things that he saw about God. Verse number 10, and I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the most high. I'm just going to study with these with you real quick. Here's what he, the, the right hand of God that signifies his power and his authority. He's saying God is powerful. And we need to remember that. God is powerful. Uh, let's go to the next one. Verse 13. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary who is so great a God as our God. That, that word sanctuary is used an old poetic word here, which meant holy. Sanctuary, that's a place of holiness, the place of, uh, that is sacred, the place that is set apart for worship. And, he, and he's using that to, 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 to show us that God is holy. What does that mean? He's other than. He's unique from. He's higher than any of us. And the best word I, I had to describe him in this setting is he's awesome. Like everything about God should strike all within us. Awesome. Now, 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 in our vocabulary, the word awesome, we, we, don't, we don't use it right. If we like a cookie, we say it's awesome. If we like the way a car looks, we say it's awesome. If someone sounds good singing a song, we say, man, that was awesome. So, so we've really like diminished the meaning of that word, but really God is awesome. He is so holy. He's unlike any other God. Everything about him should strike all within our hearts. Uh, let's, let's go down to verse number 15. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Now, now he says God's gracious. Because he goes back to when God redeemed the children of Israel uh, from the Egyptian bondage, which, which is a picture of our salvation. If you remember in the Exodus, he said, all you got to do to be rescued and redeemed is you got to go shed the blood of a spotless lamb and you got to put the, the blood on the doorpost and then the angel of death will pass over you and you'll be rescued and redeemed, which we know is an Old Testament picture of the Lamb of God coming to earth and dying on a cross and shedding his blood for our sins as New Testament believers. And so here's what Asaph's saying. I might not feel God in the moment, might not see God in the moment, but I have God in the moment. I, I might lose everything, even my perspective, but I'll never lose my salvation. I'll always have this to hang my hat on. I'm saved. 
I've been, I've been redeemed and rescued. What else? Go to verse 16. The waters saw thee, O God. The waters saw thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lightened the world. The earth trembled and shook. Thy way is in the sea and thy path in the great waters and thy footsteps are not known. Here's what he's saying here. God's faithful. He's going to the, to the, to the, the most obvious mark of God's faithfulness to his people. And that's the Red Sea moment. You know that one, right? They got to the brink of the Red Sea. No way they could cross a million or more people. And God swung open the, 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 the waters that they walked across on dry land. And then he closed it up and washed over Pharaoh and all those. And that's a kid's story. Like we think it's a kid's story. But that's an amazing story. And that, that, that is like the mark of the Old Testament to say God's faithful to come through for his people in the Red Sea type experiences. What are the Red Sea type experiences? Cancer. They're the big things. That like you can't manipulate your way out of them. It's what we prayed over these two ladies. How many know God's faithful to part that sea? You believe that? Doesn't mean he, our faith doesn't entitle him to do it, but we should have faith to believe that he still can. And, and faith is like the, the broken relationships. Faith is abandonment. Faith is abuse. Uh, faith is loss of employment. Uh, I mean, Red Sea moments, these, these are all, all, all big, big, big things in our life. And, and Asaph is reminding himself, hey, God is still faithful to part the Red Seas in my life. But I love verse 20, and I'll close here. He said, thou lettest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So he said, God is, he's powerful. And he's faithful in the Red Sea moments of life. But sometimes you don't need a miracle worker. Sometimes all you need is a shepherd. See, God is powerful, but he's still gentle. And he's still lowly. And he's still loving. And so you might not have a Red Sea type health experience where you've got cancer necessarily. But, 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 but you've got a wilderness moment where you need a shepherd because in Gwen's case, you got a back issue. And back issues slow you down. And, and, and they burden you. And you go to bed hurting and you wake up hurting and you got to deal with that every day. And maybe we would never bring Gwen up here because she doesn't have the dreaded C word. So, so, so maybe we wouldn't qualify that as Red Sea, but it's like one of those wilderness moments right now that she's having to navigate through daily. She needs a shepherd for that. Maybe you haven't lost your dog. You still have your job, but the bills that are coming in right now are more than even your good job can keep up with. We might not put you on the prayer list, but it's a wilderness moment for you. You might not need God to part a Red Sea necessarily. You know you'll be able to come up with it. You'll know you'll be able to make ends meet, but it's a stress that's constantly in the back of your mind. You need a shepherd. You get me? Maybe, maybe you haven't totally lost your marriage altogether. Your marriage is still somewhat manageable, manageable enough to stay together, but boy, you're miserable. And, and, and maybe it's not a Red Sea in, in, in some regards, but it's like a wilderness. You've got to live with that stress and tension. And it's like every single day there's something new you're arguing about. And it's like, man, I, I, you just need a shepherd. You need a shepherd. See, see, Jenny, when she uh, went to the hospital in 2015, had those major surgeries or whatever. I remember that. I mean, she had like three or four in this ICU and all this stuff. Major, major, major stuff. I got her home, and then I, I, it was a Thursday afternoon, and I, I went home. She was in the bathroom crying, 
And, and, and so I, I said, what's going on? And, and, and she had these pills in her hand, these really big pills. And pardon me if you've heard this story before. It just meets so well with this. She had these, I mean, big old horse pills in her hand. I said, what's, what's going on? She said, I can't swallow these pills. Like, I'm gagging on these pills. Like she's crying about this. And I don't know if I was, like, hangry or, or just selfish. But I said, Jen, you just went through, like, three or four major surgeries. Like, your whole, all your insides were, like, reconstructed. And you survived. These are pills, babe. It's going to be fine. I went and made me a sandwich and went back to work. It just so happened that I was studying in the book of 1 Kings on a passage of scripture. I was about to preach on a lost axe head that, was in, that, that, that some little junior prophet lost in the river. And I couldn't figure out what in the world is that in the Bible for? And then I compared a lost axe head situation to like a Shunammite woman's son who just died. And, and Elijah, or whatever his name is, Elisha, raised him from the dead. And then the, the name and the leper, who he had the heel of leprosy. And then I, this junior prophet ha, has a, an axe head that fell to the bottom of the river. He's like, oh my, I mean, iron was more expensive than it is now, more, more valuable. And so he was really, really worried about it. But I'm like, Elisha, that's below your pay grade. Only call Elisha if you need water parted. But, but you need lost act. But, but Elisha handled it with the same exact intensity. And compassion as he did the Shunammite woman's son who was dead. And then I was on my, my drive home. I opened back up in my study right when I got this is such a God moment. And he said, hey, that's what it's about, bozo. It's about the pills your wife can't swallow. Those are the lost axe heads of life. Those are where she needs a shepherd. She doesn't need a miracle worker. She needs a shepherd to help her walk through the wilderness of gagging every day. And you should probably be like, the extension of that shepherd to her. That would be a good thing to do. That's a lost axe head situation. And here's what I'm saying. You, we serve such a good God that if it's a Red Sea, he's faithful to part it. But if it's a wilderness, he's loving and gentle just to lead you through it every single day. That's the God we serve. If I could boil all this down to a statement, here it is. Put it up there, Kelpster. The perseverant worshiper accepts their affirmity for what it is, but still sees God for who he is. That's what Asaph's trying to get to us. He's like, I'm not living in some false reality. My circumstance hadn't changed, even though I've done everything I've always done. But at the end of the day, here's what I'm going to do. I will see God for who he is. Yeah, I won't deny what I'm in. But at the same time, I will not deny God's reality in my life. He's awesome. He's gracious. He's powerful. He's faithful. And he's the loving shepherd. So if you get to a point where worship isn't working, do what Asaph did. Keep worshiping. Accept your infirmity for what it is. But see God for who he 